aren't you guys so thankful for what a cool um, worship leader we have? You know, like, <laughs> no, I got him back, man. I got him. So I am so grateful for Nate and for his leadership here at First Baptist and for Noah and Pastor Bob and Gary and Rochelle, who often is missing. Rochelle, I'm so glad you're in this room. Um, that's right. Pete said amen. Um, I am so thankful. Like, so, you know, I, I wish you could all see it every week, what I get to see, um, how you, God's people, are just at work being, being God's people in New Orleans um, on a regular basis. Um, I just wish that, like, you know, you could just be on that front row with me of seeing how, how the church is at work. Um, that you hosted this week two really large events in this room, um, in, in your facility, the D-Now that you heard about. But then at the beginning of the week, um, we invited probably somewhere close to about 200 churches through BCM, Baptist Community Ministries, and their Congregational Wellness Program, um, which reaches beyond Southern Baptist churches, but to other evan evangelical churches in our city. And then also the NOVA, um, the New Orleans Baptist Association, um, we held a, an event in here called Safe Ministry Solutions. And it was this intent, it was this, you know, big collective of having these experts come in to help make the church ministries of our city safer, healthier, stronger ministries. Um, and, and you hosted that at no cost to, 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 to those churches because you want to be part of healthy churches growing in our city. And then the, the, the D-Now, I mean, 25 churches coming here and being able to gather and to worship all that, it, it, no additional expense to them to be here because you believe in reaching the students of our city. And you know that we can't do that alone, but we're doing that in partnership with other churches. And so just know that you've been part of that. But then, um, I love that last week after the sermon, um, one of our kids who you're going to see baptized next week because you are being the church, you that are parents, you're bringing the gospel home and you're communicating the gospel in your home. Um, a, a, young, a young, one of our boys in our, in our children's ministry came down afterwards and said, I gave my life to Christ this week and I wanted to let you know. And so we talked about the gospel and it was just obvious. Mom and dad had been sharing the gospel with him and helping him to understand his need for Christ and he was ready to follow Christ. And so you're going to to see that baptism next week. And so you'll want to be here for that. Um, it was so great when I heard that on Monday, when we were hosting this big event, citywide event for Ministry Safe Solutions, at the end of the day, I get to the very end of the day and I look and, I, and I've missed, you know, some information about one of our members uh, having to go to the ER because of a drop in blood sugar and just, you know, like going through a lot of health crises that one of our deacons, I'm so thankful for our deacon ministry, one of our deacons made, made a beeline for the, the ER as soon as he heard in order to be with him um, in that moment. And that's just you, the church, being the church, bringing the gospel. And that's not even to mention our English as Second Language ministry that happens here every Wednesday, the group that gathers here to go to, to Jefferson Parish, to go to Rivard Juvenile Detention Center, to bring the gospel and to bring hope into the, into the, into the juvenile detention centers. Um, just all of the things that are going on on a regular basis of being the hands and feet of Christ, of bringing the gospel to our city and to the nations. Um, I just hope you're encouraged to know that you are at work as God's people 
people on a regular basis, and I give God the glory for that. It takes a lot of work behind the scenes to do a lot of that stuff. I'm so thankful for Pastor Bob. Um, I think a lot of you know Pastor Bob more, and we're so thankful for his ministry at our church and how he works tirelessly behind the scenes. And so when you see him, thank him. If, you're, if your room feels comfortable, it's because he made that happen. Um, you know, if it looks nice and clean, you'll notice it's even we did some work in this room, some of the ceiling tiles, and there used to be like a stain over there somewhere. Pastor Bob coordinated all of that and, and, and helped make all that happen, as well as um, visiting in the hospital. Many of you that maybe were sick this week or are or, or going through medical needs. So anyway, so thankful for the staff that God has assembled here and all of those things where I see God at work. Um, this morning, I want to invite you to turn in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going through this sermon series called, Why the Cross? Why the Cross? Um, why of all the ways that God could save us and make us his own and forgive us of our sins, why the cross? Like, what, what is it that, that required this, the symbol of death? Um, you know, like I think we miss that sometimes that, that this is a symbol of death for us. It has become a symbol of hope and life that this is, you know, the symbol of the cross is now like the, the symbol of what Christ has done for us. And so it's a symbol of, of God's love for us and all that. But it would be like if, if today I was to take and put an electric chair up here or to put a bunch of syringes for lethal injection, you say, Chad, that's really morbid and dark. That's what it was in the first century. Uh, the cross was the electric chair. The cross was lethal injection. Um, and so we, we kind of disconnect that. And that's okay because it does have this dual meaning of both death but also life. But we miss it sometimes, the death part. And so that's part of what this sermon series is intended for us as God's people is to be reminded of the costliness of our sin, the sacrifice of our Savior, and the gift I mean, the true gift of forgiveness and life that he has given us. We, we need to be reminded of this. Yesterday, um, later in the afternoon, toward the evening, uh, the kids and I, we were sitting around and stuff, and, and I had seen that, that Indiana Jones movies were on Amazon Prime. Anybody an Indiana Jones fan here? I mean, come on, that's the good stuff. George Lucas, Steven Spielberg's best works, in my opinion, you know, no offense to Star Wars, but I love me some Indiana Jones. And it was the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I was like, man, I've got to introduce my kids to this. Like, this is just, you know, the good stuff, you know, true adventure. And so we start watching this movie and it's this quest for the Holy Grail. And, and so they're like, what is the Holy Grail? And I was like, well, the Holy Grail is this, this idea that there was a cup that caught the blood of Christ. And that because it caught the blood of Christ, this cup now has power in order to affect healing and to affect life to all that drink it. And in the movie, they kind of take some liberties and it's, you know, even, you know, like in this specific place, you know, that it can't leave and all those kind of things and no spoiler alerts, you know, you know, you know, but, but all that to say, it's one of those movies where like the whole movie is Ori around a getting to the cup getting to this cup. And why? Why this cup? Because of the blood of Christ. And, and, and it's important for us to see that while this is like cloaked in legend and, and there's, there's, there's very likely no such thing as a cup that caught the blood of Christ and all that kind of stuff, it's important for us to see how the blood of Christ has been understood throughout history that legends like this even develop, that, that, that stories like this have emerged. And while some of us have, have had the chance to go to Israel. We don't all have to go to Israel to understand this, that there are sacred places in Israel 
that people will spend all of their earthly wealth to get to to touch. And why? Why do they want to touch it? Why is it so sacred to be able to touch that stone? Because Jesus touched it, because he bled on it, and because his dead body was laid on it and prepared for burial. People want to touch it, and they just, they, they, they're, they're taking garments and they're rubbing on these stones because they so bad want the, the efficacy, the power, the effectiveness of that blood, that the blood touched that, and so therefore if anything else touches it, it gets made clean. It gets made whole. It might help me in my sickness. And we see this longing in humanity. When I was in Israel, when Cole and I went just recently, there were thousands and thousands of people at some of these locations just, just weeping and crying and trying to touch these places. The same desperation you see in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade of that quest for the cup, the Holy Grail. Why is this question, why the cross, important? Because I know my brothers and sisters, my, my spiritual family, my people, I realize that few of us are wrestling with the question, why the cross? I get that. I realize that for most of us, we accept and believe that Jesus died for us on the cross and that we have been forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus and what he did and his death, burial, and resurrection. You're more likely concerned today with the marriage of your adult child or the choices that your adult children are making in their parenting and about the outcome for your grandchildren. You're, you're likely more concerned today about your health, about upcoming tests, a recent diagnosis, chronic pain, side effects of medicines that you now have to take. You're likely more concerned about the future expenses of your kids. How am I going to pay for college? How will I afford insurance for a teenager driver? Or you may be facing life without your spouse, either through divorce or death, the prospect of not being able to have children, the possibility of losing your home or losing a child or a grandchild to drug addiction. I know we carry heavy loads. And so does the evil one. He knows we carry heavy loads. He knows that in the midst of the hard that we face, we also mess up and fall short and give in and give up and give out. He knows that what we most need is Christ and the hope that comes from the gospel. So therefore, there is nothing he desires for us to consider less than Christ and the hope that we have in the gospel. In fact, he would rather a life pursuit, a life lived in pursuit of the Holy Grail than a life lived in pursuit of the Holy One. Why the cross? If Christ was sent ultimately to die upon a cross for our sins and then be resurrected, then this is the central reality to which we are invited to ultimately build our lives and everything about our lives, including all of the seasons of our lives and all of the trials of our lives. That that's how they get framed and that's how they get sustained is on this solid rock. On this gospel, we build our lives. And any foundation that's going to sustain a substantial building must be thick, must be strong, not thin, not weak. 
held together with inner supports that hold it all together. And so we work today, brothers and sisters, in the word, not to build a foundation. No, it's already built. We labor in these moments to uncover the firm foundation that already exists in the gospel. Not to add to it, but for it to add to us. Not to strengthen it, but for it to strengthen us. And today in Hebrews chapter 9, in some ways we go on an excavation of the Old Testament, going back to these ruins as they were, these systems that were built, these structures that existed that were the foundation of the faith that now the writer of Hebrews is helping us to understand have been realized in a person. That everything that was built upon was ultimately to reveal the one called Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I invite you today to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, but then I'm going to hop down to chapter 10, verse 4, and then I'm going to come back to chapter 9 and read verses 26 through 28. So beginning in chapter 9, verse 22, hear the Word of the Lord. According to the law... Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 26 of chapter 9. And now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. God, we're a room of waiting people. And so, Lord, we admit our neediness before you. We admit that we need our, our chins to be lifted, and our eyes to be lifted to you, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in it, the one who sustains life by your word. God, to speak to our needy hearts today, to speak right into the crisis that we are in so that our lives and our hope are built on the rock that cannot be moved, Christ Jesus and him alone. Open our eyes today to see why the cross we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Verse 22 of chapter 9 is going to be the central part of what we look at today. I'm going to use it in some ways as kind of a catapult into other passages. The writer of Hebrews has been cruising along through the Old Testament, looking at covenants, looking at law, looking at priests, looking at all of the sacrificial system, looking at the tabernacle. What is he doing? He's taking us through the Old Testament is what he's doing. If you've ever wondered like, you know, what's the relevance of the Old Testament? The writer of Hebrews is making that really, really clear. He's helping us to see how does this relate to life today and what's so essential about understanding anything about the Old Testament today. He's, he's building 
concrete blocks of, of understanding for us to, to connect those two things together. And so here in chapter 9, he's been weaving through in the beginning of chapter 9 with the old covenant ministry. And, and we're going to hop back into that. And then talking about new covenant ministry um, that, that's found in Christ. And then he kind of weaves back into the Old Testament and then turns back to the New Testament, talking about the perfect sacrifice who is Christ. And so he's got all of these ideas going. So what I want to do today is just to use one verse to be the window by which we look at a bunch of different threads that are running through. Uh, I'm a simplistic thinker. I like to try to reduce things to their simplest terms and to kind of just wrap my head around it. And so what I'm hoping today for us is that amid a lot of like tapestry of like different threads of thought that are all going together, that we'll just see the clarity of what I think the writer is pointing us to that is found throughout the, the entire Bible. And so the first thing that he does in verse 22 is he says, according to the law. According to the law. And so the first thing that we need to see and we need to be reminded of today as God's people is the law of what is meant by the law. Well, the law is pointing us back to the Old Testament and it's talking about this thing called the Old Covenant. And this Old Covenant is enacted in some ways, even with Adam and Eve as they exit the garden. And then we actually see uh, Old Covenant being instilled with Noah after the flood. And then we see more Old Covenant being instilled with Abraham and, and the promises made to him. And then we see more Old Covenant with, with Moses. And so you see all of these iterations of what would be included in what the writer of Hebrews is pointing to as the Old Covenant. Because he points back to different pieces. He points back to some to Abraham, some to Moses. Um, and even points all the way back to creation when he talks about the Sabbath. And so he's pointing to it all. And so what he's saying is there's this big road sign that takes us back that we can kind of put under this one big banner called the law. And what does he want us to understand about the law? Well, what we want to see today in, in, in and around chapter 9 is at the beginning of verse 10 that helps us to understand what does he want us to get about the law? I mean, do we have to become experts in the law? Do we have to learn all the things that you can do and can't do, the stuff you can touch and not touch, and if you touch it, what you're supposed to do in order to be cleansed from your impurity and, and even understanding what does clean and unclean mean? Like, you know, like if I wash my hands with dial, am I clean? You know, is that not enough? Like, what are we talking about here? Do I have to have this perfect grasp of all of that to get this. Well, chapter 10 says no. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, help us to see what is the, the main idea of the law that we need to be able to carry to get the big idea. And so let's read it together. Since the law, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. So here's a couple of main takeaways that we need to understand that the writer of Hebrews is saying throughout all of the, the letter of Hebrews, but is saying for us today. The first is this, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. The law has only a shadow of the good things to come. 
Any of you that have ever, you know, played with your kids and, and, and they're, they're beginning to discover that thing called a shadow, you're, you're, you try to communicate to them that, that that's your shadow. And they're, you know, they're walking around and they're, you know, looking at it and trying to get away from it. And it's like, wherever I go, there it is, you know, like, and it's this interesting thing. And, and it can even be unnerving for a kid as they feel like their shadow is chasing them, you know, and, and they're like, I want to get away from my shadow, but I can't, you know, th- those sort of moments. But the shadow is not me. When, when I look down at the ground right now, I can see my shadow right here. That's not the substance of who I am. You know, you can't bottle up my shadow or capture it, put handcuffs on it, haul it away. You can't, you can't separate me from my shadow, but neither is my shadow the reality that is the substance. Now, this could seem in some ways to be a backhand to the Old Testament, right? The shadow. I mean, tell all the people that committed their lives to upholding this law that it was just a shadow. So what's he getting at? Is he trying to be offensive to say, man, this is nothing. It's, it, it's, a, it's of no consequence. Not at all. Not at all. You see, just as significant of illustrating the presence of me is my shadow, so is the presence of Christ seen in all of the Old Testament. The, the, the very presence of God is seen through his shadow in all of these things that we look at in the Old Testament. It is acknowledging the presence of God, but what it's saying is it wasn't the main thing. That, that these were just shadows of the reality that is God and the reality that is Christ. And if you saw my shadow, if you were anticipating me, and, and the light was shining behind me, and you could see my shadow entering the room before I came in. Are you satisfied with my shadow? Are you like, ah, his shadow has arrived. We're, we're content with the shadow. Everyone welcome Chad's shadow. No, no one does that. That'd be really weird for us to welcome shadows in the rooms. No, the shadow is only an anticipation of the arrival of the person. The Old Testament was meant to increase anticipation as the darkening and the shortening of it got closer and closer until they beheld Christ. That's what his point is. It's not to minimize, it's it's to say this was preparing the way. This was readying a people for the coming of Christ. This was readying all of humanity for the coming of Christ. But we must remember the law has its place. The law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things. That's what the text says. That's what he's communicating. But then we have to remember this next idea that he begins to expound. Secondly, the law can never perfect worshipers. You and I are created to worship. Understand that about the essence of your existence as a human. You were created to worship. That's why you get excited about sports. That's why you get excited about your kids and when they do something good. There is an inner part of you. You are wired to worship. Get that about your, I mean, it makes sense of everything else. We're wired to worship. But our hearts are broken, fallen, sinful, and so therefore we worship wrongly. We'll, we'll create something in the image of God and worship it. It would be wrong for me today to come and to cling to this cross over here and worship it rather than the one that it points to. 
That, that, that's what idolatry is. I'm making something in the image of God or something that reminds me of God, some icon, and then I give my life to it, to preserving it, to making sacrifices to it, to even wanting to shed my blood to protect it rather than the one that it points to. In the writer of Romans, Paul communicates this. He talks about how our hearts are distorted and we worship other things rather than God. And what he's saying is, even though the law is cautioning against things like idolatry, and and the law is helping us to know what is right and wrong in the sight of God, it alone could never perfect, completely complete us, take away our sin, all impurity, all of these things. The law couldn't do that. It could never really make us the kind of worshipers that we were intended to be. But there is one who can, and the text is leading us there. But then finally, as we go down, it says, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. What's that pointing to? That's helping us understand that there were prescribed offerings. There were prescribed ways that God intended to be worshiped by his people, and it included animal sacrifice. It included some grain offerings and oil, and and there were also financial offerings that could be made. But by and large, what we see kind of like, you know, over and over again is the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament. And and God requiring this of his people for different occasions, for sin offerings and for guilt offerings and different uh, uh, uncleanliness and all of these things that are going on, we see the need for sacrifice. And we even see it being fully revealed over in Leviticus 16 with the Day of Atonement, this one day when a sacrificial lamb would be given and its blood splattered on the, you know, uh, you know, sprinkled on the people as this one day offering that was supposed to represent this cleansing of sin. But then guess what? It needed, it needed to happen again the next year. And, and, and my sin offering needed to be offered again the next year. And, and my guilt offering needed to be offered again the next year. And, and year after year after year, I had to keep making these sacrifices. And listen, while, while this seems so distant and it seems so irrelevant to us because we're like, man, I, you know, I don't even like to buy meat that looks too much like the animal that I'm eating. You know, I, I want a real disconnect from from the animal sacrificed and and what I'm going to be eating tonight for dinner, that was a regular part of life for the people. There's not many of you, except for the the few of you in here that are hunters, you know, that really have dealt with with killing an animal and then like, you know, having to do something with that animal. That was part of the culture. That that was part of what it meant to worship the Lord, to be very present in, in those moments of death. And to remember that That was supposed to be a constant reminder of sins. Verse 3, he goes on in verse 2, otherwise wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all? He's making the point that this didn't work. That's why they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. It wasn't really taking their sin away. Since the worshipers purified once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but... In the sacrifices, verse 3, there is a reminder of sins year after year. God is saying that through these sacrifices, I was reminding you year after year after year that you indeed are a sinful people and what you need so desperately from me is forgiveness. Now, if you're here today, please hear me. I'm speaking a message of reminder to you. 
We, we as God's people are to be reminded of the gospel. It's the reason that he gave us the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper is because both of those uniquely communicate the gospel. When we baptize someone like Levi McLeish will be baptized next week. Um, when, when he stands in the water, he's standing there reflective of the, the old man, the, the man in need of the grace and forgiveness of God. But we believe that by looking to Christ and trusting in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we're actually united with him in his death. And that's why we go under the water like that. But if we're united with him in his death, what's the end of the story of Jesus' death? Resurrection. That's right. So we, we don't hold people down, you know, and say, united with him in his death, and like, you know, stop moving. No, no, it's, you know, and raised to walk in the newness of life. So like, even in the baptism that we do for every believer, there is this, you know, inherent reflection of the gospel. And then when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we remembering? His body given and his blood shed. The blood remember, being given the specific reminder that it's the blood of the covenant, this new covenant that we have, this new, this new promise that God has given us in Christ. So you've got all of this meaning wrapped up. So if you're a believer here today, know that part of our life is to be spent just being reminded of the riches of the gospel. And why is that? Because we are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so we must again and again and again come back to this gospel. We never graduate. And remember, the evil one wants you thinking about anything else and everything else. And so we have to be intentional to return again and again to this gospel because it reminds us of what we have in him and of what he's rescued us from. But the writer of Hebrews makes no apologies for reminding the people of the law, of reminding them of, of, of what they should have to do for their sins. He reminds them that the law was only a shadow. He reminds them the law could never perfect you. And he reminds them the law is a constant reminder of your sin. But then he turns. But before he turns, I want to just consider for a moment the relevance of this message for us today. Number one, the, the social good, caring for orphans and widows, welcoming the foreigner among you, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of these things, all of the good that we see in the law, all of the social good, the concern for the vulnerable, that was only a shadow. Let's just apply it. It was only a shadow of the social good that we are set free to pursue in the gospel. So let me just ask us this. Does the shadow of the law do more good for the vulnerable than the reality of the gospel at work in us? Is, does the shadow of the law, would people be better off if we were still under the law doing it than the freedom that we have in Christ to love our neighbor as ourselves that we have been set free in Christ, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which he called us to, to that he you know, prepared ahead, ahead, ahead of time in Christ for us to do. That's what we're intended to do. Which one would benefit New Orleans more right now? The freedom that we're walking in, and, and does that show that we have truly been set free to do good works or does the shadow seem like more the reality? Second, the freedom we have to worship is not meant to be a mindless, take-it-for-granted freedom. Did Old Testament worshipers give more thought to what could never perfect them than you do to what has eternally perfected you? We should be mindful worshipers. 
We should be those who contemplate the riches of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, when we do, it fuels our worship. We worship him more intensely, not less. And then finally, reading the Old Testament is a reminder of the weight and magnitude of the sin from which we've been saved. Remember, we read the Old Testament not to be constantly reminded of sin, that I'm a sinner, that I'm a sinner, that I'm a sinner. We read it in order to see the one who has forgiven us of all of our sins. We read the Old Testament rightly when we read it to see Christ and his victory over sin and death. We, we, we experience all that God is and all that he has done and all that he has promised to do. We experience him differently in Christ. We're no longer under the law, but that doesn't mean it has no value. But we understand its value properly when we consider it as the writer of Hebrews does here. But going back to verse 22, it starts off according to the law. And then he goes over and he says, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood or this, this literally flowing of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so second, what we see in this text is the blood. And what I want us to see quickly about the blood is this. Number one, the blood purifies almost everything. The blood purifies almost everything. In other words, what he's pointing back to in the Old Testament is that different elements like a bowl, a cup, uh, you know, garments, people. I mean, all these things had to be purified with blood. So even though we think of like blood's getting you dirty, in the Old Testament sense, blood was cleansing you. There was this opposite effect of those things that had been consecrated, given over to God, and then the application of that blood and the effect that it was having on us. Secondly, the blood is required for forgiveness. If there's to be forgiveness to be had, then blood had to be shed. Now, this, this word here in the Greek is only found here in Hebrews, this shedding of blood. And it's almost thought that maybe this word was kind of like built by the writer of Hebrews to communicate two ideas, the, the flowing of blood. And, and, and while we don't understand exactly, maybe precisely what he intends in this passage, we know that there is the record of Jesus being speared after his death and, 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 it, and it being recorded that blood and water flowed mingled from him. And so we don't know if that's the precise moment that he has in view or just the fact that from this cross, blood would have flowed freely from his wounds. But don't miss the, the picture. Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then look down at verse 4. Of chapter 10, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, what's the relevance of these three realities for us today? That blood purifies almost everything, that without blood, that blood is required for forgiveness, and that the blood of animals is insufficient to take away our sins. Number one, blood is still required for purification and forgiveness, nothing has changed. You say, Chad, we're, you know, we're 2,000 years later. I think we've graduated from that. I think we know now that, you know, there's no need for sacrifice. Apart from Christ, there would be. We need to recover that. That if it weren't for Christ Jesus, you and I, if we want to know God, if we want to be counted among his people, we would be those who would be constantly making sacrifices. It would require the death of animals on our behalf. You say, well, I have some, uh, some Jewish friends and they don't sacrifice animals anymore. Like I, I know, like they, I've been to their synagogue or I've talked to them about their faith. 
they, they don't do that anymore. So see, haven't we graduated? Just because someone today stopped doing something doesn't mean that it would not still be required. This is the weight of this for us. If it were not for Jesus, your only hope would be this, this law, this thing called the Old Testament in the way of the law. Right now, rather than just being concerned about a medical crisis, a financial need, relationship strain, future of your job, all that, you would also be worried and, and fretting over how are we gonna get an animal for the sacrifice? Because we have to do that. The last thing we need to do is to be on, the, on God's bad side. We, we, we have to keep doing this. And so provisions were made for, for a poor man's sacrifice. In fact, we see that that's the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary make, turtle doves. And so it's important for us to understand that all the way up until the time of Christ, people are making the animal sacrifices. And if it were not for Christ, that's exactly where you and I would be. But here's the second thing that has not changed. The blood of animals is still insufficient to take away our sins, even if we were still doing it. We had no knowledge of Christ. We were obeying the law down to the precision of everything that was required. The blood of animals could still never take away our sins. There is no new way to be saved from sin. There's no new way. I know that we've graduated in so many things and clean water and preventing malaria and education and rights for people who need human rights and all of these things, but there is no new way to take away sin. I'm so thankful that we live in a day that we live in where we've been able to help so many of the problems that ail people. The problem of sin has been remedied only in Christ and he alone remains the only remedy. And even though we might say, well, that's a 2000 year old solution. I mean, we don't do that with anything else. We don't look back 2000 years for clean water solutions. We don't look back 2000 years for, for sanitation solutions. We don't look back 2000 years for like, for protecting food or education or all these things. Sure, there might be some principles back there, but, but man, we've, we've come a long way. Isn't there something better today? And the writer of Hebrews says, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than Christ and Christ alone. And so the third application is all people in all places are therefore desperate in their need for the blood that can purify, forgive, and cleanse within. The blood of bulls and goats can't do it. If it really, even if they have bulls and goats, they use it, it doesn't fully work, then what they need is blood that can because they need blood for forgiveness. And so therefore, thirdly, we see Christ. Look at chapter nine, verse 11. But Christ has appeared as high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a, of a young cow sprinkled, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so he's setting things in contrast, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences 
from dead works so that we can serve the living God. He purifies us, brothers and sisters, inside and out. That's the contrast. He's saying if the old law could purify the outside and, 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 and purify the flesh, well, then how much more the blood of Christ to cleanse the outside and the in, to reach in and to take away the consciousness of sin. So many of us are walking around today still conscious of sins that we've been forgiven for. Brothers and sisters, you have been forgiven by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You're cleansed. You are cleansed. Stop walking around like you still are guilty of sin. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Don't hold your sin against you. He doesn't. And it's only his opinion that matters. Why would you then indict yourself? Why would you walk around a guilty man when you've been set free? Shame does that. Satan does that. He wants us to live defeated lives. But brothers and sisters, you have been cleansed. Your consciences cleansed from the dead works so that you can serve the living God. But then verse 26 goes on to say this. Otherwise, we would have, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But then this idea, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to bear sin. He already did that but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. What this proclaims is that he has removed all our sin. If you have believed in Jesus, if you have trusted that when he died, he died a once and for all death for you, paying for all of your sins, past, present, and future, then what this word is proclaiming to us today is that your sins have been removed. You're clean. You are forgiven. And this is radical because what that means is you don't need any other sacrifice. You don't need to bring another animal. Well, we don't really bring animals, do we? But we do sometimes bring money. And we want to pay off that debt with our debit card. Brothers and sisters, you're forgiven. You're free now to give out of generosity, out of joy, out of forgiveness, in worship, joyfully not to pay off a debt. Some of you, you don't bring an animal, but you bring lots of hours of service. Uh, you know, I need to do this to, to pay off my debt. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And can I tell you the most joyful servants that I know are the ones that know they've been forgiven and they just want others to get to experience the same forgiveness. They're just, they are just so full knowing that they have been forgiven and they want that total weightlessness of shame and guilt. I saw a beautiful testimony that you'll get to hear in a few weeks via video when we highlight New Orleans mission again of a woman who experienced that incredible grace after experiencing so much brokenness and carrying so much shame to now walk with a confidence in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's what he's given us. And then there's the promise that he will come again to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Right now, in your marriage difficulty, you're waiting for him. 
right now in your anxiety over how I'm gonna pay for medical expenses or school or insurance or mortgage or all those things, you are waiting for him. Right now in life choices, in difficulties at work, in, in, in hardship in parenting or being an adult parent to an adult child, you are waiting for him. That's your arena to wait for him. That's your arena to say, I'm clinging to the gospel. I'm living in light of the gospel. I want to honor you, Lord. I want to wait for you faithfully in this context. That's your context. But we need the reminder. We need the reminder that's written so clearly in a song. It goes like this. The blood that gives me strength from day to day it will never lose its power you know that one the blood that gives me strength from day to day it will never lose yep it will never lose it won't lose it air state it will never lose its power that's what we need the reminder of that's what the writer of hebrews is reminding us of that the once for all sacrifice of jesus christ will never lose its power. And because it's so powerful that it will never lose its power, it's able to make you ready for the day of Christ right now in your crisis, what you're going through. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. But if you're here today and you've never experienced the power of this blood that doesn't dirty you, but actually cleanses you, that takes away your guilt and your shame, Know this, it is still powerful today and it is still available today. And it's only received by those who ask, who say, save me, apply your blood to me, cleanse me, Lord, take away my sin. And his word says that there's not been a single sinner who's cried out for forgiveness. That he says, not for you. He's faithful and just to forgive us when we ask for his forgiveness. So will you ask today? Maybe you're here today and you're already a follower of Christ, but you've gotten mingled up in sin. Maybe you need to just come and be reminded of these steps, just remembering in prayer that his blood will never, ever lose its power. It's powerful for you today. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that in these moments of response, as we sing songs of praise and worship, and Father, as some of us come and we just kneel before you and confess that we have gotten mingled in sin, that we will remember that we are forgiven. We will remember that you have died once for all for our sins and that you are able to make us ready for the day of your coming. So Lord, please, would you make another person ready for the day of your coming by forgiving them of their sin? And please, Father, would you remind one of your saints today in this room that they are forgiven. They are forgiven indeed. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're gonna sing a song of response. I'll be standing here to pray with you, to be pastor to you in these moments. But you respond to the Lord. He's the good shepherd, and he's the one who perfectly tends your soul.